Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I had a great conversation with Pennsylvania Representative Jordan Harris. Jordan is a Democratic caucus whip in the legislature and a national leader on criminal justice reform. He's smart, funny, and engaging. Listen to a man who is not just serving his community, but making systematic changes. Enjoy. Representative Jordan Harris, welcome to an honorable profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. So I want to start, I got a lot of policy and a lot of politics I want to talk to you about, but let's start with the fact that you are the whip for the Democratic caucus in the Pennsylvania legislature. For our listeners out there, tell us what what is a whip? Why does it matter? What's your day like? Does it involve any physical pain or is it just uh, mental uh, and uh, pain to the soul? <laughs> so, you know, it's funny you, you say that. I'm asked that question all the time. So in the House of Representatives, the whip is the second in command in the caucus, second only to the caucus leader. So, you know, I've been the whip. This is my second term. So I'm, I'm, I'm the second person in our caucus. And my, my, my job is kind of what it sounds like. My job is to, to keep members in line with whatever it is that we're doing as a caucus. So I'm the guy who counts the votes. I, I, you know, my job is to know the votes before they happen. And, you know, if the caucus has a position or if the caucus needs to be in a certain place um, for our long-term goals, it's my job as the whip to see how I can get people there. In addition to that, it's really about helping to also manage the caucus. I mean, in, in Harrisburg, in Pennsylvania, our caucus is it's like a business, too, because we have employees and we have HR and we have a whole lot of other functions. So outside of the legislative, there's the business part. And, you know, I'm responsible for being a part of that apparatus as well. So, you know, on the day to day, people always ask me, you know, what's my normal day? Well, there is no normal day. You know, I could be doing anything on any day of the week to serve the caucus and to serve the people of Pennsylvania. And when you're trying to hold your caucus together, I bet a lot of people think it's a lot of sticks trying to trying to pull people together. How much of it is carrots? How much of it is sticks? How much of it is long-term relationships or short-term relationships? Like, tell me how you, what skills do you bring to try to hold a caucus together in these times? Well, I mean, it, 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 you can't go to McDonald's and ask them for the recipe to the secret sauce. So, so you know, so here, here, here's what I'll say. What I try to do, honestly, is find common ground and commonality with my members. You know, but, but let me say this. I, I believe I'm able to do that 
it, it starts from a place of knowing the member, knowing their district. So, you know, I've made it a point to get out to my members in their districts, so to crisscross Pennsylvania, to talk to them and, and, and to see what their what their community is like. You know, my members are voting in what way they think is going to best benefit their community. So before I ask them to take a vote here, before I ask them to be in this position or that position, the best thing for me to do is to know their district. So I start off by, you know, going around to my members, visiting in their district, talking with their constituents, and finding out what their issues are. Once I, once I do that, you know, I, I really try to find commonalities on whatever it is that we're dealing with so that I can, you know, convince or show my member why it's in the best interest of their district to be in a certain position. I think that makes a lot of sense. When I got elected to the Board of Supervisors, the best advice I got was take a car ride with each one of your colleagues and have them show you his or her district and understand what places are important, understand the neighborhoods. And once you do that, you get a real good understanding for where they're going to come from on a on one vote or another and where they may feel some pressure or where they may be willing to make compromise. I think that's, I think it's smart to, to go to the, go to their home turf and understand what home means for them. You got to understand I, I'm from Philadelphia. I represent a district in Philadelphia County and Philadelphia is totally, totally different than many of the other counties in Pennsylvania. Right? So I have, I have an urban district in the heart of a city and I have, co- I have colleagues who, you know, have the most rural of rural districts. I have colleagues that, you know, if you're in a certain place in their district, you can't get, you can't get internet service because broadband is, is, is not readily available in their district. You know, for many people in my area, that's a foreign concept, right? So you know, when, when I travel, I now understand why, broadband is so important to some of my colleagues or why, you know, certain other things are important to them because, you know, it's, it's a priority in their district. So, you know, when we're talking about certain issues, I can already estimate where some of my members are going to be because I know what's important to them in their communities. It makes, makes a big difference. So tell me you're doing the work to build a big tent democratic party in the state of Pennsylvania, which is obviously essential not only to people who are in Pennsylvania, but frankly, to the entire country as a swing state. Tell me the state of the party and your caucus in Pennsylvania these days. Our caucus, I would say, is, is, is changing. Our caucus has become much younger in a very short period of time. It has become more diverse in a very short period of time. So you know, my my caucus is, is 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 definitely changing and it's different. But think about it. Think about it this way: when when I got elected, right, I was one of the youngest members in my caucus. When I got elected, the average age of our leadership team was probably mid sixties. Now, the average age of our leadership team is you know mid to late forties. You know, so. I've been able to be a part of, of, of seeing a dramatic change and shift in our caucus for the better. And Democrats are still, you know, sadly in the minority in Pennsylvania. So we got a, a lot of work to do in the House and in the Senate. You know, while we do have a Democratic governor, you know, the gerrymandering that we saw 10 years ago of our districts have truly affected the way, you know, power is shifted here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And like you said, Pennsylvania is a swing state. So 
you know, who we vote for for United States Senator or who we send to the United States House of Representatives in Pennsylvania matters. So for me, what we do in the PA House and in the PA Senate as Democrats, the messages that we're sharing, the things that we're fighting for, those things have a ripple effect to the whole country. That is absolutely true. And I actually want to talk about one of those things because uh, as we speak, I know you spent the morning on a national panel talking about your clean slate law, which has become a model for states all across the country. Can you walk us through sort of the origin of that law, how it passed and how it's now starting to take hold in the national consciousness as we talk about criminal justice reform? Yeah, listen, I've always said in my mind, criminal justice reform is the civil rights issue of our time. When you look at the effects of the criminal justice system and how it negatively impacts communities, how it negatively impacts families, it is a major, truly major issue. So for me, uh, when I went to Harrisburg, one of the first things that I wanted to do was, you know, really dig deep into reforming our criminal justice system. I started in 2000. Well, actually started in 2013, pushing criminal justice reform. But in 2016, we we passed what we called record sealing. Different from expungement. It's, it's, it's record sealing. It's different from expungement because law enforcement still has the ability to see these records. But these records are hidden from the average everyday person. So in 2016, we did record sealing. Uh, and we started there with misdemeanor twos, misdemeanor threes that are of a nonviolent nature. And, you know, what we begin to see was that although there was a pathway for folks to get their records sealed, many of them still weren't coming in to get it done. So in 2018, the idea was if you really want to help people with criminal records, you're going to have to seal their records and you're going to have to do it automatically. So what we did in 2018 is we passed what we call clean slate. And with the help of a lot of people, you had national partners coming in to help us get this done, like, you know, Center for American Progress on the left side and Freedom Works on the right side. Uh, you both had Democrat and Republican groups, think tanks, foundations, you know, really trying to support the work of getting criminal record Feeling done in Pennsylvania. It was back at that time that I was approached by a government relations professional to work with one of my colleagues by the name of Cheryl DeLosier. Now, Cheryl and I had worked together in the legislature, but we had never worked together on a bill. And, you know, the truth is Cheryl and I are very different from each other. I am a, a black male Democrat from Philadelphia and Cheryl is a Republican from Cumberland County. And you would think that we don't have any of the same commonalities or same issues or concerns. But what, what I found out was that when we actually sat down and talked, we did. For me, I believe that, you know, second chances are important. Well, Cheryl believes that we need to get more people back into the workforce. And one of the ways that you do that when folks have criminal records is you find ways to help them clean up their record. So Cheryl and I worked together, and um, in 2018, we were able to build a bipartisan coalition that included you know, the business community, law enforcement, advocates and activists, 
and we passed the nation's first clean slate law, which basically said after 10 years, if a person has been free of a conviction, uh, if they had a misdemeanor two or, or three, which are some of our lower offenses, they will be able to have their record sealed automatically. Now, that, that, that was really the key to clean slate is that these records would automatically seal. If you had a misdemeanor one, you would still have to go to court for that. But if you had a misdemeanor two, misdemeanor three, something that was thrown out or something that you were found not guilty of, you would be able to get your records sealed automatically, right? So check this out. We did that in 2018. It, it, it took hold in 2019 because it took our courts a year to actually develop the software so that they could actually seal the records. So from 2019 until today, 2021, we sealed more than 36 million records. And it's affected 1.1 million people. So, you know, what we saw after that, after we passed it in Pennsylvania, was that there were other states that wanted to look at how they do record sealing. The second state that looked at it was the state of Utah. Utah passed a clean slate bill. After Utah did it, the state of Michigan did it. Now, then you had the state of North Carolina uh, doing something similar. So, you know, since we did that in Pennsylvania, you're seeing states across the country pass clean slate legislation and get it done. So, you know, it's, it's been a great experience to do that. We're now trying to expand some of the things that we did under clean slate so that we can, you know, help more people. Yeah. And can you talk about the th- those things and whether that, sad to say, but at this day and age, a bipartisan coalition to move real public policy forward. Is that coalition holding? And what's the next, what are the next couple bills that, that you're looking at in order to, to, to continue this effort and, and really try to reform the system going forward? Yeah, so right after we passed Clean Slate, my colleague, Representative Lozier, and I got together with uh, a Republican and a Democrat from the Senate, and we started the Bipartisan Criminal Justice Reform Caucus in the legislature. So it's the Criminal Justice Reform Caucus is bipartisan and bicameral. So you got members from the House, Senate, Democrats, and Republicans who come together to get information and insight on different things affecting our criminal justice system, and then work together on legislation uh, that we can move in both chambers to actually address it. So, so for example, we just we, we had a, a more recent criminal justice reform caucus meeting literally earlier this week to talk about, you know, different things uh, that's going on with our Department of Corrections and some of the things that we want to see changed. That meeting was attended by Democrats and Republicans, both from the House and the Senate, that represent urban, rural, and suburban uh, districts. So although it is very much, sadly, partisan times in Harrisburg, criminal justice reform and reforming the system remains, uh, in my view, one of the issues that you can bring folks around the table to address. So tell me, I mean, this is then I think some of the dilemma that we hear from members of Congress and state legislatures. So as you mentioned, you're working with these Republicans doing important policy changes. You're in the minority. So anything you want to do, you need to find some Republican support for. But Pennsylvania has also been this incredible battleground for the the big lie told by the Republican Party about vote stealing, uh, about you know election irregularities and everything else. How do you work with colleagues who, on one hand, are moving important legislation forward, but on the other hand, maybe 
engaging in just rampant falsehoods about the state of our democracy and legitimacy, political legitimacy in America. Um, I voted for Joe Biden. Quite honestly, not only did I vote for Joe Biden, I was a Joe Biden delegate. So I cast my my vote in electoral college for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And as a delegate, I was I was actually sued by some of my colleagues as they tried to uh, some of my Republican colleagues as they tried to challenge the the, the result. You know, it it, it 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 was nasty. I was I I sat on the couch and I watched what happened in Washington D.C. and and knew that while that was happening in Washington, D.C., uh, there were colleagues in my own chamber who tried to challenge the election results. So, so you know, and, 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 not, and then after what happened in Washington, D.C., I had to come inside my state capitol and see armed guards in my state capitol as we had to lift the level of security that we have in the Pennsylvania state capitol. So, you know, all that stuff happened. But at the end of the day, for me, you know, I didn't come to Harrisburg to be a fixture or a light, a light fixture or just, you know, a, a fly on the wall I came there to actually get stuff done. And what I do, and particularly being in the minority in the House and in the Senate, I got to work with folks who I vehemently disagree with on issues. It intensified after, you know, you know what we saw in D.C. And, and, and things of that nature. But I don't have the luxury to go home and tell my constituents that I couldn't work with somebody because we disagreed on, on, on nine out of 10 things. Cause my constituents are going to ask me, well, what about the one thing that y'all agree on? Look, I just told you, we did, we sealed 36 million records, 1.1 million people affected. I had a woman, a mother, there was a story told to me about her who she was working, but she couldn't get promoted. And she had all of the certifications and she was making way, way less, than what she was qualified for because of her criminal record. You know, I've, I've, I've had folks approach me who couldn't get jobs uh, because of their criminal records, couldn't feed their families, right? And then Clean Slate comes along and it helps steer their records. And now, you know, they're getting promoted, they're getting employed, they're doing the things that are necessary to take care of them themselves. They're, they're really getting a clean slate and being able to get back to their lives. They don't give a damn that, you know, Democrats and Republicans don't might not get along on, on these other issues. No, because, you know, what we do in Harrisburg, ain't, it ain't just about, you know, putting the votes up on the board. Those votes mean something. They mean somebody's child is going to go to a school with the, the resources that are necessary or without. It means that when somebody comes out of uh, being incarcerated, they'll be able to get their life back together or they won't. Those votes mean that big, you know, business should pay their fair share or not. That's what those votes mean to me, right? So these votes aren't just an exercise or fun. The votes that we take in Harrisburg change people's lives. So for me, even if we don't agree, that's cool. Even if you want to talk about me as I leave the room, that's cool. But when we come into this room, we need to come into this room and do something for the people of the Commonwealth. So the 62,000 people that we represent in our districts, because quite honestly, they deserve better. And, and for me, I don't have the luxury not to get things done. Can you tell us about your path to public service? Is this something you always wanted to do? Is this something you found your way into? What, what does that look like? And I know, I mean, I, you're born and raised in Philadelphia, so you're 
when you talk about these issues, you can hear the passion because you're you're from the community that you're trying to represent and trying to make things better for. How'd you decide that politics was the way to do that? Yeah, I mean, look, I was a uh, look, I was a nerd growing up, uh, but I was a cool nerd. I tell you all the time, I was a nerd with swag. Like I was, I was a nerd. Don't get me wrong, but I was cool. You know what I mean? So I, uh, I was the president of my fourth grade class. I was the president of my senior class. I was involved in student government and, and, and college, but I, I was the kid who would run home and wanted to be home to make sure that I watched the State of the Union because, you know, watching the State of the Union was important to me. But let me, uh, let me divert real quick. The reason why, because I don't want people to think I was too nerdy, because I, I mean, I, like I said, I was kind of smooth too. But, but the, 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 the truth is, right, I had a, a great uncle who was also my godfather, right? It was my my grandmother's brother called him Pop-Pop Jack. And Pop-Pop Jack would sit at my grandmother's dining room table for Thanksgiving or Christmas or major holiday. And my grandmother would have all of her siblings who lived in the city. They would come there they would, and they would bring their kids. So all of my cousins would be there and whatnot, right? So, you know, I grew up in an era where there was an adult table. And what that meant was only adults sat at their table and the kids had to go sit somewhere else because at the adult table, we got adult conversation, right? So, so if you were a kid, you know, growing up in my community and many black families, that kid just wanted to be at the adult table. You didn't know what they was talking about, but they were laughing and then you want, you wanted to be at that table. So Papa Jack, you know, you know, said to me one time, I, I tried to sit at the table. My mother was like, you better get up and move and pop up Jack said, well, wait a minute. And he said, you know, can you tell me about anything that's going on in the world today? You know, I'm paraphrasing, you know, and, uh, I, I couldn't come up with nothing. And this is what pop up Jack said to me. He said, if you want to sit at the adult table, you got to be able to talk about things adults talk about. So this is what he told me. He said, next time, next holiday, if you want to sit at this table, you got to talk to us about current events. So Pop-Pop Jack, at a young age, challenged me to pay attention to the world around me. And that's what I did. So I did run home to see the State of the Union. I did watch the news all the time and, and find out what was going on or current events. I tell people all the time, one of my favorite TV shows growing up was The West Wing. You know, be, be, because I wanted to always be immersed in, in that conversation when Pop Pop Jack and, and, and my great aunts and uncles were around the adult table. So I had an interest from a young age because of that in, in government. And then when I got into high school, I was president of my senior class school. They wanted to close the school building that I was going to and move it into another school. And I just thought that was a bad idea. So I worked with parents and teachers and, and students and we organized and we rallied and we kept the school open. In the midst of that, I met my state senator who offered me an internship. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. I, I got bit by the bug. I saw how, you know, politics could actually affect positive change. And I wanted to be a part of that. And I went to school for government and political affairs at Millersville University, and I haven't looked back. And tell me about that first race that you decided to run in. What was it like? You know, what was it like knocking on that first door, making that first call? 
how'd you end up in the legislature? Yeah, so like I don't know, I you know, cause cause honestly, when I think I, I'm so here, I'm gonna let you in on a secret, and people don't believe this, but I'm actually a very shy person. Like I, I'll, I'll stand to my look. I grew up as an only child, right? I grew up as an only child. It was just me and my household with my mother, so I was always to myself growing up. So I had I had no problem as an adult going into a room that's crowded and standing in a corner and being by myself. I'll stand in that corner until somebody that I know comes up and approaches me. So, you know, my first race, man, you know, I got my campaign manager telling me that I need to just randomly walk up and talk to people who are in my neighborhood. And, uh, you know, I, I'm walking out the office with, with a street list of, of, of doors that I need to knock on and sheets that I need to fill out about what the people are saying. And I got to, I got to work on my stump speech about what I'm going to say when a person actually comes to the door and I got to spend three and four hours a day picking up the phone to do call time to help raise the money, man, you know, it, it was a, it was, it was a different kind of mode for me to be in as a person who could have easily just sit in my room by myself and, and enjoy myself and just, you know, like literally just chill out all day. Right. And now I'm, I, you know, now I, I got to walk up to, to random people and convince them, convince them that my candidacy, my candidacy is the best. So, you know, it came about because the person who was currently the state rep was running for city council in my city and, and in our area when you, you know, city council districts are bigger than state house districts. So, you know, he was coming back home to run for a city council seat. And he and I had worked together in that senator's office that I interned in. And he said, listen, if I run and I win, I want you to run for the state house seat. Because he was encountering lots of folks on a campaign trail who thought he was doing a good job as a state rep. And they just didn't want to want him to leave. You know, so, you know, we decided that if he won, I was going to run. Now, I always had a desire to run for public office. Just never knew when it was going to happen. And lo and behold, he won his council ranks. And then turns around and was ready for me to get ready to start running. And that's what it was. I mean, I, I look, it's, it's, it's me and my, my crew, we, we, we laugh about it, but it literally started with a box of pizza at my mother's dining room table with a small group of people who were dedicated and committed to changing the system from what they saw to what they thought it should be. And, and I'm blessed that all of those people who are around the table are still with me. And the only ones who aren't are the ones who, you know, sadly have passed away. But yeah, like it literally, my first campaign meeting was, was in the living room of my mama's house. And, and it, and it, and it grew from there. It grew from there. It's amazing when you think about what, what starts with a couple people sitting down and eating pizza together. There's a lot of big, big ideas, big movements that start uh, with that simple premise. Can I ask you, see, you talked about being maybe a little introverted, shy. So I got a listener. Let's say there's a listener listening to this right now. They're interested in politics. They want to do something, but they're, but they're shy. And the idea of talking to people all day long sounds tiring or unappealing. What's your advice for them on how to navigate politics if it doesn't come naturally to you to want to go up and talk to 50 strangers? How do you do your job and do it well 
if you're if you're a little bit shy, introverted, maybe a nerd with some swag. Yeah, I mean, like, gotta have that swag. Gotta have that swag. Uh, but what what what? Look, what I would say is like the first thing is start out by doing something. You know, people always, you know, ask me about you know I want to get involved in politics. What, what do you think I should do? And I'm like, you should do something else first. You know, if your foray into serving your community is by by running for office, don't do it. Because, you know, for me, running for office ain't just a thing to do. Running for office ain't the, I want to get involved in my community, so I'm going to run for Congress or something like that. Now, you know, if if you run in the, be on an advisory board at a recreational center, I mean, okay, that's different. But, you know, I get folks that'll come up and be like, I want to be involved, so I want to want to run for Congress. And it's like, but but you haven't attended the, the block cleanup on your block. You 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 can't tell me where the library is in your neighborhood or the community center. You can't tell me any of those things, but you 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 want to run for office? You know, nah, you gotta start by doing something. Whatever your hands find positive to do in your community, do those things. Here's why it's important. Because what you start to do is you start to build relationships with people who become supporters. But you also get to hear, understand, and acknowledge what the concerns are of your community. Look, I've been here my whole life. And while I know mostly what this district wants, some things I learned by just hanging out in the hood. You know, some days, you know, pre-pandemic, you could have caught me at my neighborhood watering hole, sitting there having a drink, eating some seafood. Why? Well, because when I'm in there, my constituents walk up to me and tell me what's going on. Tell me what they need. Tell me their concern. You know, you might catch me in your church on Sunday, pre-pandemic. People come up to me during service, after service. On Friday, you might catch me in your masjid because I keep my ear to the street by being in the street. So, you know, I tell people all the time, do something. Get immersed in your community to know what your community wants. Then I often suggest working on somebody's campaign, right? Uh, Get a feel for the process. I don't think your first campaign working should be your own. You you, you need to learn a couple things. Uh, If you're going to be a legislator, if you want to work in a legislative body, I think one of the first things you also need to do is watch Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> you can't run for office and don't know how a bill becomes. You laughing. I'm trying to tell you what I know. People yeah. run for office, and sadly, they don't know the process. They don't know the, how a bill become a law. You got how you? Yeah, I'm. Look, man, I'm trying to tell you what I know. Some folks they just don't know. So, like, yeah, watch Schoolhouse Rock. Find out how it works. Some folks will find out when you go through all of these different phases and steps and channels and all of this stuff, at the end of the day, you find out that it ain't something you really want to do. And that's cool because, you know, there's this mindset that in order to help your community, you got to be in elected office. No, no, no. No, there's lots of work that can be done in our communities without running for office. But if you do want to run, learn all you can about your community and about the process. Volunteer on somebody's campaign, get some experience, right? And then when you do it, run for a reason beyond just, I want to be elected. Have something that you want to change, a system that you want to change, a system that you want to make better. 
ideals and principles that will guide you, that will be your North Star. When you have those things, I think you can not only just be successful in winning, because there are many people who are successful in winning, but become failures at the job, and that does not benefit the community. It can't just be about winning an election. It has to be about winning the future, winning the narrative, and, and, and winning the space so that you can actually face systemic change. I love that. Next time someone asks me about running for office, I'm going to make them listen to this episode uh, and then come back and talk to me. <laughs> I always say, you got to go out. I want you to go out, coach a kid's sports team. I don't care what sport it is. Little kids that aren't your own, get to know the parents, get to know the kids, and then come back and talk to me. Yeah, no doubt. But you, you, you said it way better. <laughs> I appreciate it. A couple more questions here before I let you get back to uh, doing the the whipping uh, of the caucus. You've been vocal about the Democratic Party needs to do a better job of speaking to black men. You or people like Pop Pop Jack. What can the party do better? And are you seeing any changes? No, we ain't doing that yet. No, we, no, no, we're not. As a party, we are not doing a good job of talking to black men and talking particularly to young black men. And not only we're not doing a good job of talking to them, we're not doing a good job of addressing their issues. Like sometimes folks have to actually be what they say they're going to be. You know what I mean? For example, we just had the Derek Chauvin trial, right? You know, he was convicted and people talking about, oh, they ain't celebrating. Nah, man, we ain't celebrating. Black folks ain't celebrating. Black folks is relieved because, you know, most black folks is like, no, nah, he going to still get off. Huh? Because we we have a history. There is a track record of when it comes to black folk and the police, police get to kill us without any consequences. You know what I mean? So, so no, nah, we weren't celebrating. We were relieved that finally uh, uh, somebody went to jail. But that ain't justice. How's that justice? George Floyd is still dead. This was not a Lazaristic moment. He didn't come back. He is still dead. Ain't no justice. There may be a part of closure for his family, but there's no justice. Justice is dismantling the, the, the systemic white supremacy that has persuaded law enforcement for far too long. Justice is dismantling the, 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 the militaristic ways of our police department. That's justice. Right. So when you talk about what, what the Democratic Party is or isn't doing, the Democratic Party ain't doing enough to talk about that. The Democratic Party ain't doing enough to stand up about that. Democratic Party has to do a better job of working on these issues around criminal justice reform. Democratic Party has to has to, you know, take stances on education. That may not be popular. Right. All of those things affect black men from the failing school that they go to, to the criminal justice system that incarcerate them, to the police that arrest them. And then to the lack of opportunities that they have after all of that transpires. That kid that was failed at the age of 13 and 14 and when they were crying out for help because you locked up their daddy, their daddy wasn't there. They were crying for help and nobody helped them. Democratic Party ain't talking about that. Listen, I'm a Democrat. I'm a good Democrat, but I know our flaws. 
we have not come far enough to actually talk about the things that are at the root, at the core of who we are as a country. Democratic Party ain't talking about poverty, economic justice. I ain't just talking about economic empowerment and economic structure. I'm talking about economic justice, a fair and equitable system of finance. Oh, no, I'm not just talking about, you know, $15 minimum wage. That's the least you can do. I'm talking about a system by which a man and a woman, regardless of their skin tone and color, can actually go out and get a loan to start a business. I'm talking about the fact that you got appraisers that come to a neighborhood, see a black man in his house, and his house gets appraised for 10, 20, 30% less than what it's actually worth. That's taking away that's taking away money out of his pocket. That's taking away wealth from that generation. That's what economic justice is about. That's the stuff that we need to really be talking about. We'll talk to black males, talk like that. That's powerful. So tell me what's the first two or three things that the Democratic Party need to need to put on the table to begin the conversation and to begin the change? Well, I would like to see a serious commitment to police and policing in our communities. I'd like to see a serious commitment from my party in addressing that. Here's what we got to stop, though. We got to stop. We need the party to stop looking at black folk and addressing issues of black folk as if we're just addressing issues of black folk. No, black folk are the backbone of the Democratic Party. So when you're addressing black folk issues, you're addressing Democrats' issues. You need to come to us and look like, look like, you have to address our issues as if our issues are important to the whole party. So we need to address policing. The other thing that we need to do is we need to reimagine the criminal justice system. You know, I've 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 stopped uh, or I've limited to, I've limited my use of the term criminal justice reform, and here's why: I'm limiting the use of criminal justice reform because you can't really reform a system that you know was built on a flawed foundation or cracked foundation. So you can't really rebuild or you know, uh, uh, reform this system, right? We got to reimagine the criminal justice system, right? And that's what I would like my party to do is to reimagine the broken criminal justice system. Here's what I mean. And think about it this way. You got police to arrest. You got judges to sentence. You have departments of corrections to house. You have probation and parole officers to monitor. You have district attorneys who bring forward and prosecutors who bring forward those cases, right? All of those things are part of criminal justice apparatus. Well, whose job is it to make sure that the person doesn't go back? Who's holding any of those structures accountable for the recidivism rate that we see? What's easy to do is look at a person and be like, oh, they just a degenerate, they're a criminal. They're just going to keep going back and forth from jail. What's hard to see is that person has an addiction. What's hard to see is that because of that person's failing school, that person cannot become gainfully employed, and therefore they go out and they create, they commit crimes of necessity, right, in order to live. See, 
See, what the system wants you to believe is that there is a criminality to certain people. What they won't say is that they aren't criminals. They were forced to do these activities. Now, listen, that's not absolving anybody of their own personal responsibility. Absolutely, there's personal responsibility. Absolutely, there are people that have gone, who have you know, come up well and have well and still do other things, but we cannot forget the brothers and sisters who are literally out there doing what is necessary in their mind to take home money to support their families. We created a system that, 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 that pushed a lion in a cave and they get mad when, you, when the lion snaps at you. We create, that's the kind of system we created. So when you talk about the Democratic Party, what can they do? They can talk about that, reimagine the criminal justice system so that it can address those inequities of, of, of recidivism, right? These folks aren't just criminal-minded. They're just not criminal. Here's the funny thing, right? I, I can't tell you how many folks I run across that once they got out of the system, when they were actually given a chance, they went on and they succeeded. Many of my business owner friends will tell you that some of the hardest working people that they know are people with criminals. Lectors. But we've been conditioned to believe that these folks are criminals. That's why they keep going back and forth to prison. No, they keep going back and forth because when they got let out, they didn't have a place to live. They didn't have a place to work. They didn't have health care. They didn't know what they were going to eat. Right? So let's reimagine the criminal justice system. A system that actually looks at a government entity that is responsible for making sure that you don't go back. That's responsible for making sure that the Department of Corrections is actually correcting. So for me, when I talk about the Democratic Party, I want them to grab hold of this. This is the issue to talk about. If you reform this system, you can break the generational bondage of an unjust system. So what, I want, what do I want Democrats to do? particularly for black men, I want you to address policing. I want you to address the criminal justice, but then I want you to really get a hold of the economic justice piece. What can we do? We can, we can look at all of this American rescue money and all this money that's floating around right now and see how do you section that off for black business owners? You know, one of the industries that had to close, had to stay closed the longest was my black barbershops, my black hair salons. How are you going to make sure that they recover that they are restored and that they're repositioned to go on and be successful as business owners and entrepreneurs, particularly when you look at the fact that these are the industries that many of my brothers, my sisters, and my siblings find themselves in when they have criminal records. Right? That's what I, you ask me what I want from the Democratic Party. I want those, I want those to be priority in the Democratic Party and not just add on. Not to, I don't want them to be subcommittees. I want them to be the committee. See what I'm saying? Absolutely. I love the idea. I mean, yeah, if you take the healthcare system and the system is responsible for keeping you healthy and having equitable healthcare outcomes across race, you get a different outcome. If you take the criminal justice system and you say, who's responsible for someone not coming back through this system? you get a totally different, a totally different outcome. You reframe the reframe the outcome you want uh, and build equity into it, and you can really change things. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Think about it this way. We do that, though. Right? We, we do that with healthcare. We didn't come up with these intermediaries, and their job is to make sure that the healthcare agency or entity is doing what it can to keep people out of the hospital. 
We, we've got teams, uh, uh, managed care organizations, where it is their job to keep their folks from going back into the hospital. We incentivize. We incentivize organizations that do that correctly. So the, so the blueprint is there. The yellow brick road is there. The model is there, right? So what I'm saying is it should be a focal point for us to say we can't keep arresting people and locking them up and then letting them out. 80 to 90% of people in our criminal justice system are coming home. But what are they coming home to? It makes sense. And I appreciate the challenge. And I appreciate the clarity of the challenge and the urgency of the challenge. Jordan Harris, thank you for serving your community. Thank you for serving your state. Thank you for creating a model that other states are now modeling and uh, recreating in their states. Uh, Thanks for being a New Deal member. And thanks for being on the honorable profession. I appreciate you. All right. Thank you. Take care now. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.